0: This is Tommy's Outdoors 128. Have you ever wondered about land access rights? Uh, Should it be free for everybody or should it be limited in some way? There's a lot of discussion um, about this subject right now. And today, this is one of the topics I discuss with Ian Carter, the author of the book, Rhythms of Nature. Ian was our guest in episode 105 with his previous book. And today he's back with his new book. And uh, we discuss this and many more interesting topics and we also talk about the books. And this is first of the two episodes uh, where I talk with authors of uh, books about nature and I will strive to release those episodes uh, week after week. So I'm switching from my usual bi-weekly, meaning every two weeks schedule to weekly schedule, uh, just because I have so many episodes in the pipeline and I don't like sitting on the episodes. Um, so this is first of the two uh, book-themed episodes, and um, just a reminder that you can buy those books, uh, all the books I'm interviewing authors, as well as those that I review on my blog. You can buy those books through affiliate links uh, on thomisoutdoors.com books, or just uh, go to the description of this show, and by buying the books... Through affiliate links you are helping me with ever-growing costs of running this podcast okay obviously your price is not changing Um, so that's one thing another new thing is that I have a newsletter Tommy's Outdoors newsletter uh, and it is very important to me uh, that you subscribe to this newsletter okay no spam you will get uh, an email and we get this newsletter twice in a month maybe three times in a month um, and you will get notification there about the new episodes of the podcast, uh, blogs, as well as new Tommy Saldors projects, new and exciting projects, and changes, because changes are coming to Tommy Outdoors podcast. So get onto that newsletter, uh, newsletter.tommyseldoors.com, or again, just go to the description of this show and find a link there to the newsletter and put your email in. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I'm sure you will enjoy that newsletter too. And finally, uh, you can support me directly by buying me a coffee, buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors, or again, go into the description of this show. Like description of this show is like a little newsletter in itself. So just go in there, check all the links, uh, buy the book, subscribe to the newsletter, buy me a coffee. And uh, if I had to pick one thing, if you want to do only one thing out of those three, I would pick Newsletter. It is really important to me. So you get into that newsletter, and it is important to you as well to to you know stay in touch with all the uh, upcoming news and changes that are coming to Tommy's Outdoors. Okay, that's it for this introduction. And folks, now Ian Carter and Rhythms of Nature. Carter, good to see you again, my man. How you doing? So, uh, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, I'm all good. Thank you. Thank you. Really good. Fantastic. We are here to talk about your new book, Rhythms of Nature. And for people who are new here, uh, they can go back and listen to our podcast about your old book. It was episode 105, titled Human Nature. And this is, this is your old book, so people can listen back to that. And today we're going to talk about your new book. And interesting thing is that in that new book, there were certain events happening. There, there are record of events happening while we were recording the previous episode of the podcast.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: I found it really, you know, I was listening. It was like, oh, this has actually happened when we were recording the very podcast. So you were dealing with some uh, foxes on your, in your yard, in your backyard, and from your book, our 12 strong flock of hens was too great a temptation, and individuals were being picked off one by one. The long grass of the rewilded lawn offered a thick cover so the hunter could slip unseen to within striking range. The cockerel did his best calling frantically. Once, memorably, including on the podcast. That's our podcast. And charging towards danger when the hen had been caught, but he was as powerless as we were. Before long, we were down to six hens and felt obliged to pen the survivors out of Harp's way. <laughs> yeah, that was that was uh, happening so well. I hope that today. No hens will be harmed during making of this, podca- this podcast. No,
1: we've moved house and there are no hens, so I can guarantee you. There may be some sheep bleating in the background. Is as much as I can promise you. I think.
0: <laughs> okay, so that's gonna be in your next book. <laughs> no, no, then what, what was going on? Okay, Um Ian, what is the what is the one thing about your new book that you're most proud of?
1: Ah, that's a ah, very good. Good question. Tough question to start with. I suppose it's the, the the last book was more almost written by accident. I was kind of frustrated working in conservation, took early retirement. I had a lot on my mind and there were some conservation issues I wanted to talk about. And I'd already written some things down, you know, part essays, part short chapters and put it all together. And it turned into a book a little bit by accident. Rhythms of Nature was when I'd fully retired, moved down to Devon, wanted to get back, really connect more with the natural world, made a conscious effort to do so, and I kind of knew by then that I would be putting it together in the in the book. So to make all that happen, and you know, as a deliberate project, I, I guess was the difference between the two books.
0: Yes, and you know, for for me, um, I, I must I must admit I enjoy your style of writing, and I was kind of like. Um, really it was really nice to read this sort of the book again and for me you know this is this is for people who are watching this on youtube um that's that's the book i just want to acknowledge i don't know whether it's the best thing but i just want to acknowledge how well put together the book is it's just, it's a quality object to hold in hand and the the paper and the the uh, type setting is is perfect it's very readable it's beautiful it's it's really well made and the format is a, it's a small book but it's almost square which means when when you're reading it's comfortable to read because the lines are longer when you have those small books the lines are tends to be short it's hard to read but this this is like very well put together so shout out to uh, pelagic publishing for putting that book together and i just wanted to acknowledge that that's maybe you know typography geek in me but i'm paying attention to those things
1: yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Actually, I think there's a, this the, the standard format for hardbacks, and and I think some people think, well, it's not a proper book if it's not that full size, standard hardback. But I find with you know they're they're quite hard to hold and to and to yeah, you sort of harder to hold with one hand anyway. And that I sent that to my a copy to my parents, and my mum said that's the perfect size. It goes straight into my handbag. It's a perfect fit, so she was pleased with the
0: size there. Yeah okay so that's validated that's <laughs> validated. That's valid. very good very good okay um you talk about a lot of things in your book uh and and people should definitely uh read that book and uh, as always the link is in the description of this show where you can go and click and buy the book and uh so today we're not going to cover obviously everything uh but i just want to pick out a few uh topics um some of them are very, you know current. Some of them are subject to heated debates. And obviously, uh, what I like to do on the podcast is discuss heated subjects in a civilized manner. and uh, and the first one is land access. So again, um, from your book to kick us off, I have another way of exploring new places. I get myself dropped off in a remote spot with an agreed pickup point a few miles away, on the far side of an appealing tract of countryside. Importantly, the drop-off point and pickup points are not readily connected by roads or public footpaths. This is about trying to find a way across landscape that would otherwise be difficult to explore. These walks are somewhat less rigorous version of Trespass Walk, pioneered by Edwardian Times traveler and journalist Stephen Graham. He took a compass and having arbitrarily picked a direction, North say he followed it resolutely to the guidance of the magnetic needle. The title of his book, A Gentle Art of Tramping, hints at his reasons of doing this. He goes to explain, It takes you, a lo- it takes you the most extraordinary way and show what an enormous amount of face of the earth is kept from feet of, an o- of ordinary humanity by the fact of private property. This is still very much true today. Access rights in England and Wales cover only a tiny proportion of the land.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I mean, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we have foot, we have some open access a- in England, some some open countryside that it, that you where you can go. But if you don't happen to live near one of those areas, then it's no good. And um, of course, we have the footpaths. And people often point to the network of footpaths and say, "Well, what's the problem?" You know, they have this wonderful network of footpaths, and it's great to have that. But my argument is you know, if you have a huge area of land and you have a footpath going across it, that's just one very thin, two meter wide line that's been chosen for you. You know, the route's chosen for you. That's not really exploring the landscape. You know, if something interesting happens in the wood away to one side, or you like the look of a bit of, bit of habitat and want to explore further to see what birds might be breeding there or what plants are growing there, You're, you can't do that from the footpath. So yes, that's why I think better access rights are really, really important. And having just moved to Scotland actually recently, a few months ago, uh, here we do have that greater access and it's absolutely fantastic. And I would really go as far to say as it can be life changing. Simply to be able to get out there and not have to worry about gamekeepers or farmers telling you, you know, leaping on you and saying you can't come here. You you can go. You've got to act responsibly, but you can you can go anywhere in the countryside, and it's it's really fantastic.
0: Mm. You know, like out of all the topics and all the issues I talk about, this one is that uh, I am most on the fence on this one. You know, if I if I were given the uh, powers of the ruler of the universe, I couldn't make a decision quickly on like what 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 do I want to do? Because on one hand, I completely agree with you, n- not being landowner myself. You know, I want to be able to go and explore and see things, especially being hunter and angler. But on the other hand, I you know i can imagine being a landowner and not wanting you know just random people having right to to you know wander around my land so i you know i, I i'm i'm not sure which is the which is the right, which is the right one
1: well, yeah i mean it is tricky and i can i i suppose i can see it from the from a landowner's point of view i mean i i suppose yeah, you know, everybody has selfish tendencies. And if you are the one that owns that tract of land, I can understand why you just want it all to yourself to do your own thing. And you don't want any disturbances for, for, from other people. But I think from my point of view, we've, uh, as, as not being a landowner, um, surely we should be doing things for the sort of greater greater good and open things up as far as is reasonable without causing too without causing too many problems it's right to open things up to people that are in a less fortunate position and obviously there are lots of people that don't own anything you know they might live in an urban area with no access to any land or at best a a green park with no with very little wildlife and i think it you know benefits for society i suppose in terms of opening up these areas and benefits for the environment in the longer term, because it's important that as many people as possible care about wildlife in the countryside and want to protect it. And how can you possibly care about it if you can't see it? And, and this is and huge areas of, of England, especially huge estates. You know, people aren't allowed in there, don't get to see it, and therefore don't come to care about the, the countryside and the wildlife that lives there.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that what you're? I think that was that was you who said that the right to roam goes hand in hand with conservation. I, I don't want to you know put the words in your mouth, but I, this is something I think yeah, conservation.
1: Somewhat. Well, and I would say responsibility. So I don't think it it absolutely should not be a free for all. It's not just people can go anywhere and do anything. And in Scotland, uh, it comes with you know codes of practice and guidance and educational materials. So it's a right, I think it's a right, it's called a right of responsible access. And absolutely, I mean, landowners need protections, they, they you, you can't just um, go anywhere and do anything if that would be overly disruptive um, to wildlife. So it does come with um, limitations and restrictions. And I think that's that's quite right. But um, certainly in England, there are just huge areas where I don't think there'll be many problems if people are allowed to go there, uh, but you know they're just they're just closed off at the moment.
0: Hmm. When you were talking about those restrictions and responsible access, that sounded to me awfully like a footpath <laughs> again.
1: Well, well, no, I don't. I a mean, footpath is too restrictive, I think, because you could have a square kilometer of, of countryside with lots of bits of scrub and woodland and really nice areas to explore and your access is is two meters wide in a straight line that somebody's already decided, for. it might take you through the, the dullest part of the the countryside, often it does sort of it's it goes across the fields and doesn't go through the, the, the woodland. So to me, that's too, too restrictive. Um, but that doesn't mean there, there shouldn't be restrictions and And limitations, and I think by and large it works pretty well. I mean, lots of countries have got this. It's not just Scotland; isn't unusual. Uh, Lots of countries have got this. Where they have it, it seems to work pretty well. Generally, there are problems that need managing. I accept that there are issues that that arise, but for me, the pros greatly outweigh the the cons.
0: Mm -hmm. What limitations would you would you see? What you think are reasonable limitations?
1: Um, I think the obvious ones in terms of respecting people's privacy. So you can't just sort of walk up to people's gardens and, and houses, just responsible things like not you don't want to go crashing through crop fields, destroying the, the, um, the crop and causing damage. You don't want to be just leaping over stone walls and fences, uh, again, causing damage um, to property. There's a, the obvious thing is like not leaving litter, but I mean, I think people mostly know that that's bad behavior anyway. I mean, the the idiots out there who are going to drop litter all over the place and cause these harms, they're not going to respect the, the legislation anyway. So I don't think open access would make much difference to people like that. Um, the other restriction, which is a good one, a, a conservation one is, I mean, wildlife has legal protection. So for example, Schedule One birds, the rarer, some of the rarer vulnerable breeding birds it is illegal to disturb them you know close to their nest site so although we've got open open access in Scotland, if I uh, realize that I'm, I've stumbled close to a, a golden eagle nest uh, legally I have to withdraw immediately and if I know the nest is there I have to avoid that area. In order to prevent those birds being disturbed, so that's an example of a a conservation uh, a restriction, if you like.
0: Yeah, you touch on the on the the disturbance, and I think you know outside of a of a litter and obvious um, unsociable behavior, (laughs) which is you know kind of obvious, and like like you said, the the disturbance for bird to birds and the wildlife that that's the one of the concerns that are raised quite often by the, the opponents of open access. And, you know, like the example that you gave, in the, you know, about the nest of the eagle or something. But, you know, you're a naturalist. You wrote like a number of books about it. You work about it. You, you know these things. People might not even know that there is a, you know, nightingale in a, in a scrub or, or something. And those birds will be just, you know, the people won't even know.
1: Yeah, I mean that is true. That's uh, you know that's true in the areas that are open access currently. I mean in England we we forget, but a lot of the mountain and moorland areas um, are already open access and uh, the heathland open gr- open grassland. Um, but it doesn't seem to cause huge problems. I mean occasionally there might be a problem. Someone might accidentally go too close to a nest or not realise it's there. That, I mean that can that can happen. I suppose one argument is the bigger areas you open up, the more of the countryside that you open up, the thinner these problems are likely to be spread. Um, So the more restrictions you have, the more you concentrate people in areas where they are permitted to go, the more chance you've got of causing serious problems. And I think that's partly what happens now when people are forced to flock to areas where they are allowed to go and and they do that and you know with large numbers of people that that can cause problems so perhaps spreading the problem a bit more thinly giving people more choices reduces the chance of serious problems cropping up
0: yeah no, that's a, you know, that sounds a little bit like this mathematical problem: whether it's going to be more disturbance if you concentrate people in one places and then there's no people in other places, or whether you spread them thin and then. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think I this agree, is yeah. this is something we you know can easily. It feels like a mathematical problem. to come up with a number and say which which one is is which. But it's a, it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting point, but you know, I noticed that I was reading the book, I noticed that you were even were talking about the birds that fly away when you were walking with with the vinyl. So you were wondering yourself, like, you know, I, I wonder what is the impact on those birds, the, the extra energy that they exert. And they're doing that for no good reason because you're just walking and they're just, just so that will be happening as well. So you're not oblivious to these, these, uh potentially negative impacts of the open access
1: yeah no i think that's true i think we have to accept that whenever we go into the countryside you know we are go if you go close to a bird they you know it will fly away because humans have got a bit of history with with birds and birds know what might be coming if they don't um if they don't don't clear off so yeah i think again there has to, it's a matter of balance i suppose i don't think we should just fence off huge areas and set them aside purely for uh, for a while it needs to be managed in a way so that the disturbance is um reasonable and not going to cause significant problems but yeah whenever you go close to a bird whether that's in your garden or on the footpath or wherever it is you know that the birds are going to be disturbed to some extent but it's it's managing it and keeping it sensible i think
0: yeah it's it also goes with the education uh for for some level of education for those people who are granted access um to know like basic things maybe not not you know don't go shouting (laughs) or yeah yeah i think that's
1: that, that's true. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of it is lack of education. So I know there's a lot of issues on the coast, especially in England, um, with co- birds trying to breed on the coast—waders, ring plovers, um, tern colonies—and conservationists can get hugely frustrated because people just let the dog off, and the dog runs across to the tern colony, and the the if there's a warden there, he'll you know you'll go across and say, look, you know, your dog has just caused all these birds to fly up. The chicks are now at risk, and and often people I don't think realize, you know, what the problem is. And they might, sometimes they might get a bit aggressive and say, well, look, it's my dog. And, you know, I, I need to give it exercise and I'll do what I want. and I mean, t- I'm allowed to do that. More often than not, I think they, they would say, uh, right, I didn't realize that. Um, so education, signage, um, opening up areas where the birds aren't breeding. So you try to encourage people to those areas. Um Maybe fencing off with, with turn colonies. They're often sort of fenced off uh, with, with, with signs up there to try and discourage um, people from causing too many problems. Um,
0: Fortress conservation.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: um, no, but you're right. You know, I think even people who are initially aggressive in those cases, they might come back home and sleep on it and have a second thought and the next time because this is this is like a psychological reaction like oh what are you like right? Oh, right you're getting in this human on human kind of interaction but then once you drop the seed and they kind of sleep on it and think on it and the next time they're with the dog on the beach and they're going ah eh, you know now i know so i think this is this element as well that 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 people some of them at least eventually will 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 come to these conclusions would you be in favor of um, for example, whether landowners or not the game wardens, like a, rangers being able to still close parts of the land for conservation reasons. And I understand that this is kind of flies in the face of what we're trying to do here, because I, I guess that the, the main premise is like to get access to this wildlife and be able to experience nature and everything which which you're which, which 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 is something you talk about in your book a lot and in your previous book but then you know I'm saying like would you be in favor of actually you know limiting access to the very thing you're you try you advocating for people to have access but then you know I'm trying to kind of find like a middle ground between opening up more access and and people being able to go in and still identifying like a critical areas where you know like sorry or maybe just limit the access there yeah
1: yeah i think so i think that needs i think that's actually essential it needs to happen there are some areas where you just don't want people people going into these areas would cause too much disturbance so I'm thinking of reserves where you've got huge concentrations of geese that are feeding in on the nature reserve, maybe a small area that's been set aside for the geese, and you might have 20,000 birds there. And if you allow people to go in there, especially walking the dogs, the geese are constantly going to be flying up and disturbed and expending energy. And absolutely, that there should be restrictions, whether that's formal sort of legal restrictions or just signs and... um, ways of managing people so you're encouraging them away from those areas and that happens i mean again in scotland they have we have a there is open access here but there are nature reserves where you have the concentrations of water birds for example and certainly people will be discouraged from going to the to the areas where those birds are going to be disturbed so there might be hides where you can watch from a safe distance or there might be access to up to a certain point but please don't go beyond this point because you'll disturb all these birds so yeah absolutely there's ways of of doing it and it does it seems again there's always going to be problems um that need sorting out um there's always going to be people that ignore common sense or the rules but yes there are rules there there, there are restrictions that are, are going to be required and, and necessary. i think
0: yeah, yeah. So you're so you're clear on that. Have you ever had like a, you know, un- unpleasant encounters with the landowners to, on your on your walks?
1: Oh, yeah, a lot all the time. Yeah, I oh, mean, really? I mean it's, it's not that common, but I've been doing it for so so long I suppose that yeah, it it does happen. And by and large, you know, if I'm approached by a landowner, I mean, I'd, I'd, in England, I would trespass quite a lot. And again, not to cause problems and not trying to meet people, actually trying to avoid being seen by the landowner, but just exploring areas. And um, and I think people forget, actually, that that is something you are entitled to do. I mean, it's not an offence as such to, to stray off the footpath and trespass. The important thing is that if you are approached by the landowner, and the landowner asks you to leave, you then are obliged to leave. You know, if they say we, you know, this is private, we don't want you here, uh, pl- please leave immediately. You'd are then, but if you then dig in your heels and say, Sorry, mate, I'm not I'm staying put, um, then then you commit the um the offense. And by that's that's what I do. If I'm caught out and you know told told to leave, I I will do so. Perhaps with a increasingly maybe with a few words about, you know am I really causing a problem? Uh, maybe that's where you can get into the argument and a bit of unpleasantness, but, um, but it's, no, it's not normally a big problem.
0: Were those were those encounters, did you, did you felt like they were unreasonable or could you see their side when they were asking you to leave?
1: Well, I feel it's unreasonable because the thing I would tend to say is, uh, you know, am I causing a problem? And normally, but when I make sure that I'm not causing a problem, so... I'm not trampling through crops I'm not clambering over fences in a way that, that would damage them. So no I'm just in a wood um, w- looking at wildlife so that off if I do if I'm in a, a bit of a an argumentative mood that might be my question is is this causing a problem And people landowners generally struggle with that Very often they resort to things that I think are a, a little bit um, spurious so often they will say, well, do you re- realise as deer stalking takes place here, you know, you could be in danger? And I said, well, "Well, surely they're not going to shoot a human, no. Surely they're just going to shoot the deer."
0: <laughs> so I heard stories, <laughs> Ian. I heard stories. <laughs>
1: okay. Oh, well, maybe it is true then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Like, uh, but, you know, if there is like an active deer stalking going there, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go there without wearing, you know, blaze orange at least. <laughs> <laughs> they do
1: in America, don't they? They wear the luminous. Um, yeah, well, the hunters I think wear luminous jackets. Uh, there's too. some
0: states mandate that, mm. but I actually, I actually do have a also like a, a hat or or a, a vest. And on some occasions, like when I go on a farm and I see the other car parked, I'm putting my blaze orange vest. Okay. Yeah, yeah. because it's. Uh, I met the guy on the shooting range one day. He's a he's a wildlife ranger, and he said, "Like, Tommy, be careful. It's wild west out there." <laughs> <laughs> to say, like, "Okay, yeah, yeah right, so, okay." So, but was I am sure there was also cases when you said, "Like, you know, I am here watching wildlife," and then they said, "Like, yeah, okay." Because I mean, like, when someone starts talking with you, they they can kind of see that you are a reasonable guy and you are not, not causing problems. So, I am sure you had also like a positive experience when you were once you. Were I raised. have.
1: I have had that yeah I've I've had that with um you, know, you meet the landowner and I'm I'm you know I always sort of start, try to keep it a friendly conversation I explain what I'm doing and I hope I'm you now I'm not causing any problems and they might then if they're interested they might say what you what have you seen then and I explain what I've seen and sometimes it ends by well we don't want just we don't want every to open it up for everybody really, but you know we can see you're not causing any problems and you know, carry on. It's no, it, it, it's fine. So yeah, it does go that way sometimes.
0: Exactly. This is what this is. This is my um, uh, kind of observation as well. And what what one of the farmers told me, uh, I don't know how. You know, it's probably not true of always for everybody. But what he said, like what they don't like, and especially he's he was talking about his neighbor, that when they see people on their land, and those people see them, they turn around and walk away. And just run, and they don't like it. Then, so he said, like when you see the landowner, when you see someone, actually go to them, say hello, you know, say something. and I think it's 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 kind of reasonable because then you're you kind of showing that you have nothing to hide. You're actually going to that person and say, hey, is this your land? This is a beautiful piece of land, and I enjoy this. And and I find that sometimes they're gonna tell you like, yeah, you know, there's a deer over there, and we see like, and you have this conversation and there's this, this, this connection. And, and then often at the end, they said like, yeah, you're, you know, you're welcome here to be, you know, I, I, I actually had a um, more than one uh, pieces of of land, like a farms when I can hunt deer now, because I just strike a conversation with a, with a farmer who was there. And was like, yeah, sure. You know, it's like, so I think this is a good advice to, like I said, be friendly, explain what you're doing. Don't, don't get a, um, you know, attitude of like, oh, I, you know, you're bad, and I have all the rights here. If you, if you don't, so, um, and you know, like, this, this brings me to the to the to the final point I want to make on 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 that. Why do you think that this has to be mandated? Because you're like, we, 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 I think mostly agreeing with like. You don't want everybody everywhere. And and but you want those interested people to have an opportunity. So and I think it's down to opportunity. Um, why, you know, like why do you feel like just being able to ask a landowner for permission is not enough? Why do you think like this has to be mandated like a, you know, from the top down, like, oh, there's an open access, rather than, you know, maybe just facilitate you know ability to contact land owner and send them send them email or send them call them up and say like hey this is you know i'm tommy you have this piece of land i would like to go there and you know do you think it wouldn't be enough yeah i mean from
1: a selfish point of view i I must admit i'm not unhappy from a personal point of view with with the situation as it is because i'm quite happy to take a bit of a risk and and I, try, I must admit, I wouldn't approach a landowner if I saw them. If I can stay under the radar when I'm out there, and I know I'm on a private estate, I, I will do. But I won't, certainly won't, you know, actively hide or, or run away. You know, if you bump into somebody, you then you know you start the conversation. It, it works for for me. I think if you if you're used to doing it, if you've lived in the countryside and watched wildlife for a long time, that can work really, really well. Some you know, it does it does work well. I think the problem. Well, two problems. Firstly, for, for people that maybe don't spend as much time in the countryside, it is exclu- it, it does exclude people. It, it sets up a barrier. Some people are not comfortable finding the landowner and talking to them. They're worried about what the landowner might say, or they just simply don't know who to contact. And they won't take the risk of going into the wood and taking a chance of bumping into them because they're worried about the the consequences. So, particularly pe- the people we need to get to most, maybe to in- get them more enthusiastic about wildlife and protecting it, it, it can be restrictive. And the other problem would be, although a lot of landowners would be great and accessible and allow people to um, allow people access, there are some that simply, and you know, probably quite a high, you know significant proportion that would simply say no sorry this is my this is my estate there's a there's a large wall around it and that wall is there for a reason and it's to keep people out because I want it to do my things and it's for my hunting my personal hunting and my friends to come and I don't want interference and disturbance so some people wouldn't play along with that sort of spirit so those are the two main reasons I think
0: no and again I see both I see both sides and I I totally I'm totally with you on the, on the, on the fact that some people will just, that would be, you know, somehow mentally unsurmountable for them to ask for access and what are we going to say? And they're just, you know, people are different. People are shy. People are, you know, uh, don't have this level of want of going out there if they had to put this, this, this work. Um, But I also understand, you know, like, that's my life and I just, you know, want to do whatever, hunt deer there or whatever, you know, and, um, it's 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 tough it's tough i don't i don't have like a good idea how to how to do this um so everybody is happy how does it work in scotland you seems to be you seems to be in favor of the model that is in scotland
1: yeah scotland so essentially there are it's it's called i think a right of responsible access so there's a whole set of there's guidance and there's rules that you, you are obliged to follow. And I must say, we've only been here a few months, so I don't, I'm not an expert in the in exactly what the rules are, but there'll be restrictions on in terms of um, dogs on leads, um, the way you should behave you're in, in the countryside, you know, not leaving. Mostly it's sort of obvious common sense things, but common sense maybe only to people that are used to doing this. Maybe if you're New to exploring the countryside, it's not common sense, but you know, not climbing over fences when they could be damaged, not leaving gates open, not letting your dog go oh, near livestock mm-hmm. Get a work, Yeah, and that can cause huge, uh, yeah, huge problems. So it's a right of responsible access. As there's rules, restrictions, guidance that goes along with it. But essentially, you know, as long as you you behave reasonably, you can effectively go anywhere you want to in the countryside. And you can also camp um, anywhere. So um, again, with some restrictions about close to close to um, people's houses. And I think there are one or two areas where there have been significant problems with large numbers of people coming and camping. And there might be bylaws there that do actually restrict it. But again, generally, you can camp where you where you, where you want where you want to.
0: Yeah, I see, this is good. Where where there where the regulation are locally adjusted to the specificity of the site or demand for that site. And then you're adjusting that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing. You know, like it's interesting. And, and again, the more we talk about it, the, the more I'm kind of not sure of, of, of my views on that, because on the one hand you said, we said like, yeah, it need to be more, more access. And are we talking about those people who are living in the, Cities And like you said, they are, they have no idea and they could get more, you know, let's call it love for nature if they have this access. On the other hand, you know, for me, one of the things that could prevent like excessive number of people going somewhere is, um, you know, how hard it is to get there, you know, because, pe- you know, like it's, there's no car park, for example, close to the place. That weeds out mm-hmm. yeah. 80% of people straight away. You know, I I always give this example, which is which is kind of extreme example, but uh, it's uh there's in in Alaska there is a unit where you can draw the elk tag, and once you draw that elk tag, the game and wildlife agency, whatever it's called, they send you a letter. Which is almost like actively discouraging you to go there. It's like, yeah, it's gonna be rainy and there's gonna be wind and there are <laughs> big, bad bears. and if you kill elk within hours, a bear will try to climb the carcass, climb the mm-hmm. don't go there. <laughs> and yeah. it's like that weeds out people. So then you know really people who really want go there, and that's you know kind of ensures that there's not not much of the disturbance. So, like you said in the beginning, really, this is about this balance.
1: Yeah, and I think the um, sometimes the problems are exaggerated because I think you're right. Most people want that easy access, and that's fine. You know, that suits them. They want to go to a car park with the family and the, the dog, and they want to walk, whether that's on a path or a clearly marked open area. They don't mind that there's lots of other people, maybe, and they they do want that kind of access, and that's fine. So, I mean, here... I've got the, the the area where we live now. I've done various walks out into the into the hills. Everybody is allowed here. Anybody can can walk there. I don't see another soul ninety nine times out of a hundred, or maybe the the odd deer stalker. But people aren't suddenly swarming all over the countryside, causing massive problems. And I think that would be true in most areas. You know, I don't think this is going to open up the the floodgates and suddenly, you know, in most areas. You know, there's not many, too many people that really want to completely get away from the the path. But those that do, I think it should be made a bit easier than it is.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think I think you're you're right on, on this uh on this front. You know, like there's a, these these people like you describe in a book when you go in somewhere and you try to imagine that you're like in a distant past where there's no no humans. Just don't walk that way, don't look well that way because there's a road. Like I love it, you know, I mean I do it all the time. <laughs> So people like that will, will go there. Um, so listen, um, talking about land access and what people do on, on their land and how this might affect other land uses, it kind of is a like a segue or pivot into another issue that you talk about in your book uh, in the chapter called Green Unpleasant Land. And I'm going to kick us off with a a fragment from the book. Our home at the time was an isolated farmhouse in the Cambridgeshire fence, surrounded by arable land. The field on the far side of a channel of water running past the house had been growing oilseed rape until the recent harvest. Now it was a wide expanse of stubble. The lone shooter had concealed himself in a small cloth hide near the field edge. Over his head, wood pigeons were passing across, flying out from their overnight roost in search of food. It was mildly irritating to be woken up by gunshots, but things were about to get worse. Another shot, and then a wood pigeon flopped down onto onto the garden, bouncing a little on the turf. It was the first of several. The birds, not killed outright, carried on flying and instinctively tried to reach safety. Our garden, with its handful of mature trees, was the only cover for miles around, so that's where they headed. With their wings shattered by lead, they crashed rather than landed, before flapping weakly along the ground towards the hedge. It was left to me to deal with these birds. The shooter hadn't wanted to give game away by emerging from his hide, and in any case, he was on the other side of the water. Uh, That wasn't pleasant. (laughs)
1: it wasn't very nice and i think for you know i'm reasonably robust in dealing with things like that and i was you know i had to kind of kill them humanely sort of as quickly as i could and i was able to do that although it wasn't pleasant but i can imagine for other people that would have been really horrific you know i imagine a, a family with 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 young children that really love animals and um you know could have been potentially quite traumatized by that and that would have stuck in their minds some, you know for years to come so yeah that's a, a, just one a, one example of bad practice i guess
0: uh, yeah yeah exactly and and i, I think like, you know you acknowledge in 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 the book that this this was this is not like a common thing that was like particularly bad practice this this guy
1: yeah i think so i would i would say so i mean he might he did have a different view because i did go and, and talk to him at the the end of that and i write about the discussion we had um in the book but he was uh, one of the things i said was you know you're very close to the a house here and he wasn't having that he he saw it as his as his job to um this was pest control you know he actually mentioned you know you want you, you want cheap food don't you these, these pigeons can cause problems. I said, what about the injured birds? He says, Well, I'm not trying to, to injure them. It's not I'm not doing it deliberately. So he he, this example was, he was, he was quite old school and unrepentant. But I do think that probably is, you know, that is the exception rather than the rule. And um, yeah, I would say that's an example of, you know, shooting in an area where it it wasn't really uh, a good thing to do.
0: Yeah, so that was that was the so called pest control. Really, rather than um, recreational shooting.
1: Well, that's an interesting question. With pigeons, the reason you know the legal reason for killing them is because they can cause damage to crops, so it's it's pest control. But it's also very much a a sporting bird, I think. I mean, a lot of people shoot pigeons because they they enjoy the sport, and they they will eat what they what they shoot so the line between that is quite it's a little bit un blurry and and unclear um but it, by and large if you're in an agricultural area and you know if you if you're asked why you're shooting and you say well it's because these birds cause damage to crops then I think you, you you'd be on reasonably safe ground I think
0: mhm yeah there's there, you know I'm I'm really stunned I think is the word about the conflict in the in the UK, I don't think there is as much of it in in Ireland, but in the UK, I think there is like a massive conflict between, you know, shooting organizations and, um, you know, non shooting and and anti shooting and 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 so on, and then you know that, you know, I I, I tend to look at this uh, globally like. I'm calling that hunting everything, and obviously within that you have shooting, which is bird bird shooting, bird hunting, and then you have um, fox hunting fox hunting, which is um, illegal in the UK and still continue in the form of a trail hunting, which which probably people who are interested in this is new about the not not that recent but fairly recent events where there was a, kind of like a uncovered that what's was going on really um what's your thoughts like what is the what is the root of this massive conflict and if if there is possibility to find you know again balance between people still being able to continue practice of shooting and hunting recreational and at the same time not causing you know that much conflict maybe not causing conflict is is you know kind of like a pointing finger but kind of you know both sides agreeing to each other's argument and finding this uh, this middle ground
1: it's a shame really i mean it has become polarized but really i mean conservationists and and people that enjoy hunting could be maybe should be allies in a lot of respects because we both want decent wildlife habitat and they both want a lot of wildlife out there either to watch and enjoy or to be able to to participate in the in the act of hunting so we, i think the two could and should go together and in some other countries that probably happens much much more uh, from a personal perspective i mean i um i i don't know whether this is an age thing or whether it's just encounters with bad practice but I find, although I have no interest in shooting, I, I've become, I, I used to be much more accepting and I find gradually, just by osmosis really, I have become more, uh, I find myself becoming more hostile and, and more opposed to shooting and hunting generally. Now, as I say, that might be just an age thing. I think sometimes we get a bit softer as we, we get older and the idea of killing for fun becomes less appealing and there's... There are some well-known examples of of hunters that have hunted up to a point in their life and then they give it up because it no longer appeals. I mean, Aldo Leopold was one of them and Sir Peter Scott who founded the the Wild Fowl and Wetlands Trust. was another example of that. It might be partly an age thing, but I do think a lot of the reason for the polarisation is we're drip-fed examples of what I would call bad practice and unsustainable activities, and I mean, I give examples in this in this chapter. But we have fox hunting that was banned by legislation to popular appeal in two thousand and four, but it just carries on. You know that legislation is just ignored. The police seem, to put it charitably, sort of reluctant to get involved. There almost seems to be an understanding there. So, and when in Devon, you just used to watch this. This activity going on, so the, the, the legislation is ignored. That's you know, there's that. There's there's the illegal killing of raptors on, uh, especially on on grouse malls. It's especially, I mean, it happens elsewhere, but it's particularly concentrated there. So we have very few hen harriers when we should have have lots there's the continued use of, of lead ammunition when we know and have known for for years and years that lead causes major problems with secondary poisoning uh, of both wildfowl and sometimes raptors that scavenge on the on the carcasses uh, and then there's the sort of sheer numbers of birds sometimes the unsustainability of some forms of shooting so the the biomass of pheasants the, the vast numbers of pheasants that are released into the countryside it almost becomes a bit like target practice um the biomass of pheasants after they're released in an average year is the same as all our other birds put together now if you suggested that as a new idea that it wasn't already happening people would find that highly amusing and you'd be laughed out of uh, out of the room but that that's what happens and those birds cause they don't stay on the shooting estates. they wander into people's gardens, onto nature reserves and they cause all sorts of problems. Um, uh, then the grass again, to go back to that there, those birds aren't released. but to get the high densities, you need the the, the, the predator control. Often that goes that means raptors as well because if you if you have raptors, you won't have the numbers of grouse. you have to burn them more. so you've got the smoke drifting into nearby villages. The water runs off more quickly. Uh, you've got flood issues sort of lower down the valley um, and the, 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 the carbon into the atmosphere at the same time. So for me personally, I've reacted to that over the years. So i becoming less and less. I find it less and less easy to sympathize.
0: Hmm. You with. just get tired with all that.
1: Yeah, and there seems to be a bit of I mean, almost the intransigence. I, I would I. From my perspective, not being involved on behalf uh, on uh, with sh- with the shooting community to respond to these issues, uh, there doesn't seem to be some people. Some people do. There's some criticism, but there seems to be a reluctant intransigence. You know, to, we've done this. We've always done this. We're going to carry on. You can't tell us what to do, and that may... Uh, I I do fear that we are at this really highly polarized stage, and it's only we're only getting further apart.
0: Uh, yeah, a few things. Uh, what you what you said, like first first of all, I I I do believe this is like you said, age thing with the. Uh, and you you gave examples of the you know big guns in the from the conservation world, but even in in episode ninety nine, I was talking with the old hunter. Who's say the exactly same thing you know ah you know i already killed all that i got to kill and you know i'm just gonna you know kill like one bird like you know maybe deer that's it i don't do this anymore and you know i i remember when i was in you know a few years back and in, in, in poland when i was um i had this idea of looking at the bears and kind of like a you know gets uh get observing birds and making photos um, and I was uh staying with the with the old gamekeeper. He said the same thing. He said, like, I'm you know, I'm taking rifle, but that rifle kind of walks me through the wood. That's what I'm taking that that rifle because I but he said, like, i, I seldom shoot anything. Uh-huh. You know, and he can because he he got you know, like how the hunting works works in Poland that he is like a certain there are some like levels of experience that gives you more permissions to do certain things. And so he's obviously many years in those hunting organizations. So he, he can, and he, you say like, nah, I'm just, you know, walking. So I think, you know, I never got like a clear answer. I was kind of inquiring even in episode 99 and people who are interested in this conversation should go, go, go out and check that, check that. Um, you know, I was, I was even wondering whether it's, it's, um, you know, with age, we kind of feel, you know, more, um more conscious of our own mortality. And that's why, you know, I, I I just wonder. You know, I started fairly late with hunting. So like for me it's it's all still kind of like a interesting and and, and kind of new. But I I I, I understand. I I I I fully think this is this is the age thing. So that's one thing I just want to take it get it out there. Um on all those you know bad practices with the lead like in fairness, from where I sit, I think that in the UK, like the the Basque, they they voluntarily set out this program five years to phase out lead shot. I think they were kind of like a step ahead to, for example, what's in Ireland and in other countries. Because that was at the time when I even make a couple of episodes and videos about the uh, ECHA and EU and banning lead on the wetlands. Which we got to admit, there are problems with this legislation because having like a Europe-wide blanket legislation for everything, again, it's, it seldom works. And then at that time, all of a sudden, Basque came out with this plan. And I remember I was, I was talking probably a week earlier with the chairman of an uh, Irish organization, uh, National Council of Wildlife, some organization, NRIGC is called, when we were talking about this lead and, you know, how how bad badly constructed the law is. And then a week later, Bas comes out with that. And I remember I messaged him. Was like, well, so I think that's it since they're doing that. And he goes like, oh, my God, they're going to lose members. This is so many people upset and so on and so forth. So that, that was a move that like I thought was very positive. But that didn't help in, you know, bridging that gap either.
1: It, uh, to me I, I mean lead is an issue that it staggers me actually that it, it it's it's still an issue but for decades literally for decades and I've worked in conservation for 25 years and I was involved in uh, the the lead issue from quite an early stage and calls to to, to restrict the use and we know what this is doing but for, for all these years decades we know that if you put lead into into the environment it, it will you know, water birds especially will will feed on it, and they will die. And there are estimates out there, and you can you you know they're not uh, head counts; they are estimates with a you know an error bar on either side. But it's tens of thousands. We know, and we have known for years, tens of thousands of water birds die a, a slow death from lead poisoning because they ingest what shooters put into the environment. We've known that for so long. We know that raptors, when they come down and scavenge. On the carcasses will be killed, and that also ingest that mm-hmm. they, they ingest the lead with the with the carcass. Yeah, we know that it's harmful to humans that are eating uh, birds shot with lead. And while there are restrictions, quite rightly, on all meats sold in supermarkets for the the levels of lead, there's an exemption for game birds, so there's no restrictions at all. So you can go today and buy yeah. a, um, game bird. Uh, meat in in supermarkets, and it will have lead, and that could be. And the government advices for for set to avoid eating it regularly of certain age groups, uh, pregnant women, for example. Oh, really? Not, to eat, not Oh, to so eat it it's like open that's,
0: open text advice to not eat it.
1: Uh, yeah, that's government health uh, health <laughs> health advice. Uh, so we've known all this for so long, and, and shooters often talk about uh, this is the thing I find hard, genuinely find hard to grasp. Shooters. And I believe it, you know, they talk about respect for the quarry and that they, you know, they think that that is a, a real thing. But and how can you have respect for your quarry if you are putting a toxic substance into their environment and knowing that tens of thousands will, will die a slow death and the, the carcass won't be used for, for food, it'll just, just out there. So, you know, that's been going on for so long. And finally, I think now Basque, for example, see the writing on the wall in terms of legislation ahead and realize they have to act but it's kind of kicking and screaming last resort uh when they feel they you know have no choice but to act finally they're acting but all those birds that have have been killed in the meantime
0: uh. yeah no it is coming for sure it is coming for sure and my my take on this is like hunters and shooters should really put it you know the the argument is like oh because this is expensive because like there's no ammunition for that and no ammunition for something else but you know demand like a customer demand will drive that and if they're going to put the put the pressure and demand through their you know uh gun shops and ammunition dealers they will put this up the chain to the manufacturers and they will eventually develop it this is this you know we don't have a lead in paints and lead in cosmetics and we don't have a lead in, you know. I, I always say like the people who live now, like a younger generation, they just like, why this, on the, when you go on a petrol station you have D for diesel and then petrol is you, like where it's you well, unleaded. People <laughs> I don't even remember, like, again I remember these times when Unleaded fuel supposed to be is like oh my god the car industry will crash the engines will not work the uh, you know they they're gonna ah oh, there's gonna be all sorts of things and now we you know so I think this this is coming and this is not healthy for you either for those of you who are listening to that and are still on the fence. the problems are with really microscopic lead particles that are moving with the bodily fluids huge distances. In the in a carcass, whether it's a bird or deer or anything else, and if you're willing to look up the information and in, in papers, it's not like you just gonna cut out meat around the shot wound. It it really travels with the, in you know fluids in the muscles, and it can be found you know halfway through the carcass. So that's not good. And um, and the last thing on this subject, you know, Ian, I think. Yeah, I also think this is very unfortunate because hunters and and anglers and conservationists and naturalists, like you said, we all really want the same thing. But I think there's like people on both sides; they have so much history with each other that I, sometimes I feel like unless they all gonna change, there is n- there is no chance to finding. Because of the history, because the history they have with each other, it's nothing to do with regulations than anything else. And and also, I I I do think, and I this hurts me that a lot of these hunting organizations they just fail to adopt. It's like you know, like old guards are and the you know committees and and management organizations, and they just you know don't grasp the use of technology and modern communications you just fail to adapt and, and that hurts me because i i feel like i would like you know again like hunters and 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 naturalists like hold hands and work for the environment and you know i
1: think it's a, it, it, it's a shame because i i think hunting i mean restrictions on um the types of hunting that you're allowed to carry out and restrictions on countryside sports, if you like, it's it's only going in one direction. And you can look back to what we did 100 years ago and or even longer and gradually. It's, it's in one direction. There are more and more restrictions on uh, how you can use general licenses, species removed from those licenses because of conservation concerns, species removed from the quarry list. So we used to there used to be curlew and brent geese were, were, were quarry species in, in the UK. And now they've come off hunting, fox hunting, supposedly there's legislation there. So it's all going in, restrictions on lead are, are coming. It's all going in one direction. I feel that um, the shooting community would benefit from support from conservation, And they would get that support if there was more of a push towards sustainable activities and i i used to be in that camp um you know i i i've i'm gradually becoming less and less sympathetic as i said but you know i i think this intransigence if you like is hastening this direction of travel and uh it's not a good thing for the uh, the, the, the the hunting and shooting community if you like
0: yeah i i agree and that's what i think that um there, there is a need for adapting to a new situation if you want um, hunting and shooting continue and be available as an activity in the future. And you know, kind of like a more proactive role is required rather than only kind of like a hitting the brakes. Because I think, like for now, it's just only hitting the brakes. And and I think there's also specificity of what's going on in the in the UK. Um, because for example, you know in, in in Europe there's also push and pull in the situation with in France with shooting there's a lot of conflict there as well, mainly around bad practices, mainly about you know when the, when the people get shot in their backyard because of a poor practice. Um, but you know the, overall in in Europe the the big big mammals are coming back and the animals that were never that were removed from the you know game, list are putting put back on the game list because their their population recovered so there is a this is this is possible but um yeah uh, changes are are for sure required and and people get rid of this lead ammunition this is just not healthy for you ian um i want to finish with a um you know, we, we, I, I feel like we just got very, like, negative and, you know, what? but, but you know, it, I think it's important to say, like, your book is not like that. You're talking about these things and we kind of picked out them for the podcast to kind of talk about them. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are uh, curious about your views and, and I kind of uh, will be happy to hear that conversation. Uh, but overall, the book is uh, quite nice and upbeat on on many occasions. Uh, descriptions of nature and exploring the nature, and and um, you know, I, I like that tip that you gave it about the moon. When you look at the moon and you see like it was a B or D, so you know whether it's going to the uh, full moon or or other. Uh, it, it's 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 you know great for anyone who is interested in na- in nature and, and and these things. A great book. And I want to end up with um with actually. Uh, part of the interview that you gave, I think that's an interview that you gave uh, to uh, the publisher, Pelagic Publishing, uh, when you said, it is often said that we're wrecking the planet, but despite our excesses, the planet will be fine. Considered on a long enough timescale, what we do today is all but irrelevant. There have been mass extinctions before, And they will happen again, perhaps many times, no matter what humans get up to. That mustn't be used as an excuse for inaction. But I find it only oddly reassuring. And man, I'm I'm the same. It's like, you know, even the planet will be destroyed, like whatever... I do feel that reassuring. I didn't. find that odd at all.
1: Yeah, uh, it, I mean, it's just it, it, it could be used as an excuse for inaction. I mean, it is just purely a, a little self-defense thing because so many people that are interested in wildlife and have a bit of knowledge about what's going on and can see what's happening, it, you know, you could so easily slump into abject despair and just you know, not enjoy going out into the countryside anymore. The whole experience could be changed because everything could, you know, say depressing and the direction we're heading in. But you just, you know, we do need to act. It's absolutely essential that we do act and minimise the harms we're causing. So I'm not saying we should forget about any of that and take the pressure off. But just as a personal thing, when I go out and about, I try to think in, in terms of these big, big timescales. You know, we're here for a short time, whatever we do we're kind of irrelevant in the greater scheme of things we're not going to be around in whatever you know a a few years time there's wildlife all around there's still interesting things to see there's warblers singing in the woods there's swallows and house martins flying around there's things to see we've we've wiped out an awful lot Uh, and if you're pessimistic and you focus on that then you could get quite depressed but there's so much wildlife still out there that maybe we'll look back in If we're still, uh, if there's people still around in three hundred years' time, maybe they'll look back at this as a golden age when we still had deer and badgers and foxes and all these breeding birds. (laughs) So you know, you've got to make the most of of what is out there and take the positives from it i think so that's that's what i try to do with that little tip
0: absolutely i i totally agree with you ian listen thank you so much for your time it's been great conversation i really enjoyed talking with you and and folks uh going by the book the title is rhythms of nature wildlife and wild places between the moors uh ian carter the link is in the description of the show click on that link and get the book and um yeah Thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Tommy. Thanks.